You're listening to The Big Lift, the podcast of Web Trends Optimize, the CRO solution that enables marketers and developers to maximize the ROI on their digital properties. Web Trends Optimize is a powerful, feature-rich, and easy-to-use solution, all delivered within a fixed-price contract with no additional cost for increased functionality ever. During these podcasts, we meet some of the key influencers within the marketing and conversion world to understand their roles and examine their challenges. Today, I'm in conversation with Chloe Thomas, founder of e-commerce Masterplan, best-selling author, an international keynote speaker, and host of the award-winning e-commerce Masterplan podcast and the Keep Optimizing podcast too. Chloe is also a seasoned marketer who has advised hundreds of companies on their marketing direction. So who better to discuss the marketing funnel and why conversion is a whole lot more than just CRO? Chloe, thanks very much for being part of all this. One of the things I always like to do is to look back at people's CVs on LinkedIn and see where they came from. And and I'm I'm pleased to meet, and I use this phrase advisedly, an old school marketer, somebody who's been there (laughs) before the digital age. Because I think that having that experience of pre-digital is actually going to be quite useful as we move forward into where everything is less return on investment centric. It was what, about 14 years ago that you decided to go on your own. What was it that incentivized you to do that? Yeah. Um, so it was an accident going on my own <laughs> back in 07. Um, I had been at Pastimes, the retailer, which is where I got very into offline traditional marketing because mm-hmm. I was in charge of the catalogue mailings and as well as a lot of the online stuff. And then I got a job as head of e-commerce for a group of mail order brands with the carrot being, after my time at Pastimes, that if it went well, we'd turn it into a marketing agency. And I thought, oh, I've always liked being independent. That sounds fun. So I agreed and we did turn it into an agency. And it took me five years to realise I shouldn't be running an agency. And then it took me another five years to leave. <laughs> so, um, oh, wow. So it was all a bit accidental, but... I think with every month that passed of me being running my own business, um, I became ever less capable of being an employee. And being a podcast host, is that now f- full time ish? Yeah, yeah. Um, as of about um, one, maybe two months ago, I am now completely dependent on podcasts, speaking, and books to keep me in the way I've become accustomed. Um, that may change in the future. I may go back to doing um, coaching or consulting or something, but but for the time being, it's all in on um, on podcasts and content. So as you know, Web Trends Optimize is a CRO technology vendor, but conversion rate optimization CRO is becoming more mainstream. But one of the misnomers about conversion is it that it's all about making a sale. Could you explain the many ways that conversions can be taking place even before a visitor hits your website? Because I think that's one of the things that some of the younger marketers seem to miss out. Yeah, it's something which, you know, I'm I've always been a direct marketer at heart, whether it's, you know, direct mail as as I started off my career or email or Google ads or Facebook ads. I like to see the traffic and then the sale and then optimize accordingly. And one of the things I've never been a CRO specialist is what I'm trying to say. Okay. But but with my my hat as a marketer, one of the things which has always confused me, I suppose, is why why people get so hung up on the overall conversion rate of the website. 
because depending on the marketing you send at that website, the traffic you drive to it has a massive impact, bigger than anything else could possibly have on what your conversion Mm -hmm. rate is. Now, I totally believe we should be working to improve the conversion rate of the website, but you know, I can I can massively shift any e-commerce business's conversion rate by tweaking their marketing. So you've got to, you know, for me, whenever I'm whenever anyone asks me the question, is my website converting okay? The first thing I do is I go to the Google Analytics source medium report and I look at how the traffic channels are converting. Mm-hmm to get an idea. And the, the reason I feel all of this and that where this all started for me was back back when I worked in mail order and then was in charge of, you know, bringing on websites and doing digital marketing for the first time. And we'd be tracking the conversion rate week to week. And then the catalog would land and it would go from 2% to 15%. <laughs> and that had nothing to do with anything we'd done online. Yep. It was entirely down to the fact that an incredibly powerful piece of marketing which the businesses invested tens of thousands, you know, tens of thousands of pounds in, had landed on doormats. So, you know, I'm always a fan of looking at conversion rate based on the marketing because the marketing you do can have a huge impact on the eventual conversion rate. And you mentioned it about it, what happens before they get to the website. Well, if they've had the right messages about your business, and then when they get to the website, they're like, oh, this is the right place. There's the product I've been hearing about. Then your conversion rates are going to be better. It's just, you know, think of it as the, that kind of customer experience journey rather than just the nuts and bolts of which page did they hit and did they happen to buy. I'm going to pick you up on the the direct marketing bit because I think that's an element of that's kind of got lost along the way. And the only good example I can I can cite is that my wife buys lots of clothes and she buys some clothes from Johnny Bowden and Johnny's catalog that lands on her mat well, every couple of months or something like that is a real incentive to drive her back to the to the website but I don't see many other companies that are doing that in such volume do you think it's still a good element of marketing to keep going oh it's hugely powerful um I spend a lot of time um, with the Direct uh, Commerce Association, which is the UK's catalogue mailing industry. Now, the one criticism I have of the DCA is that they've not done a good enough job of bringing people into the fold because catalogues have been and continue to be one of the most powerful marketing methods you can do. They are hugely scalable um, the ways of making them work is considerably more evolved than it is for Google ads or Facebook mm-hmm. ads or any of the online stuff we do. And it's been hilarious uh, for someone like me over the last you know, couple of months as the cookie apocalypse has hit um, to see you know, huge D2C brands going, we've discovered something new. <laughs> um, we've started sending things through the post and we've started doing off the page advertising in magazines and doing inserts in newspapers. And you're like, that's not new. I was doing that 15 years ago. But thank you. Welcome. Welcome to the, the power that is this. And, you know, mass personalization is now really possible through those mediums. Triggered content is really, yeah. really possible. Um, and the trackability, whilst you do have the issue of it being offline to online, if you're doing it 
via address, you can always do a matchback, which is where you literally take an address file and match it to who actually placed an order to see what the real impact of that was. It is hugely scientific, hugely clever. And if anyone's thinking of going down down that route, find someone who's done it before because they can accelerate your program by years if you find the right experts. I was going to Sorry, say... Sorry, I got a bit preachy there, John. Sorry. <laughs> I was going to say, it's finding those experts now because it's been such a long time that digital has been with us that there aren't that many, I don't use the term again, old school marketers that have been down that road before and have seen the power of it, which had obviously been usurped by digital along the way. But I think you're right. I think... The, the kind of the Google apocalypse that you mentioned is actually forcing people to think differently, which is a which is a great thing. But do you think marketers need to rethink their attitude towards conversion to not just be what's on their website, but to be part of those um, elements of the direct mail and all those other pieces? I mean, I think you have to think of it. You've always had to think of it in terms of the full picture of what's going on. It's like like anything in a you know in a business. If you if you zoom into it to the exclusion of all else, you know you can't see um, see the full picture. You can't see what you should be doing because we can't. We don't, none of us you know operate our businesses in a vacuum. Our email marketing isn't unaffected by what's going on with our pay per click or what's happening at whatever whatever's going on in the in the news this week. You know the famous one back in the day was uh, when uh, when Princess Diana died, which I think was a Sunday, and you know generally. I was I was in mail order. No, I wasn't in mail order then, but I was in mail order soon after that, and heard a lot of um, people referring back to it as that awful time, because it was towards the end of August, and that's when all the big Christmas mailings land, which is usually the most expensive, heavily invested direct mail campaign of the year, and you usually aim for it to arrive on a Monday. Well, of course, that week. No one was spending any money at all because everyone was fascinated by the Diana story, mm-hmm. which is you know you there's so much you can't plan for but if you were purely looking at your 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 marketing results for that week based on what you could see on your spreadsheet you would have you know imploded with frustration and <laughs> and depression quite probably yeah. but you have to see the bigger picture and you know day to day that comes down to have we got a consistent conversational message going from the very first time someone hears us through to the point at which they check out and then beyond mm-hmm. you know it's you've got to think of it as that whole kind of emotional connection with the customer and and you can't look at any one piece in isolation. So how do you think marketers can do that? Is is there a, you know, I've read some of your book, but is there a kind of a template that they should all follow that says, actually, I need to be able to think about conversion at every stage and here's what I should be doing at this point? Well, I would say, you know, there's kind of two answers to that. And I think you think you're leading me towards my customer master plan model, which I promise to explain in a moment if I've got that right. But I think the other thing is to make sure your teams aren't siloed. You know, have your marketing team talking to your buying and merchandising team, talking to your PR team, talking to your CRO team. So, you know, your business is, you know, the various specialists you've got working in the business are working together so you know what's actually going on in the different parts of the business especially at the moment with all the stock issues we're seeing and you know Mm -hmm. supply issues and price increases and all the rest of it there's a lot of variables we haven't had to contend with particularly recently and then um and make sure your team have a good understanding they talk about the t-shaped marketer these days which is someone who understands a little bit of each area and is an expert in one. Yep. So they can can talk a good email game, 
but they're a specialist in CRO. And I think that's the approach, the soft approach we have to take to it. Now, the customer master plan model, which is um, at the centre of two of my books, the most recent one you mentioned earlier, e-commerce marketing, how to get traffic that buys. It's something I created to to perform a couple of different roles for the e-commerce marketer or the e-commerce business owner. One of which is to be a really simple visual reminder not to get sucked down that rabbit hole and to take that wider perspective. Mm-hmm. So the, the basic part of it is six circles, which if you imagine them going from left to right across the page, I call them the customer relationship levels. And each of them is like almost like a lily pad on which one of your customers or many of your customers are sat on. So some of them are out there in the world, could be anywhere in the world, um, but they've never visited your website. They may have heard of you. They've never visited the website. Then you've got visitors. Then you have inquirers. Then you have first-time buyers, repeat buyers, and regular buyers. And our job is to get people from one lily pad to the next. So that's where we focus all our energy. So it's both about going, hold on, we've got this whole piece. I can't just focus on website to first-time buyer. That's not the only part of this puzzle I need to worry about. I need to worry about what's happening elsewhere. The other reason it was created was to help um, be a bit of a decision-making tool in terms of it's never a question of, ooh, we should do direct mail or, ooh, we should do email or, ooh, we should do some conversion rate optimization. It's a question of going, um, and you should quite possibly be doing at least two of those three, if not all three of them. But it's a case of going, we've currently got a problem of getting people from the world lily pad to the visitor lily pad, or we've got a problem getting people from our email list to become first time buyers or from the website to, you know, to purchase for the first time or first time buyers to repeat buyers. That's where our biggest problem or our biggest opportunity is. How do we then tackle that? And the answers to tackle that could be conversion rate optimization tactics. They could be different marketing tactics. It could be customer services. It could be product. It could be any number of things, but we've got to take that all-encompassing view to work out what we should actually focus on. So that's, that's, if I'm right, a pretty big job for a reasonably sized um, retail organisation, e-commerce organisation. For the smaller organisation, that seems an impossible set of tasks, does it not? Um, I think of it as being exactly the opposite, actually, as being a way of helping the smaller organisation to work out what they should be doing. Because there is an absolutely endless list of tasks that we have in any business, and especially it feels in an e-commerce business. There are so many things we could do. Um, the success comes from working out what you should do. Yeah. And this is a model to help you work out what you should do. You know, so if you know the weaknesses in one particular space, you know, if you're, you've got a lot of people signing up to your emails, but none of them are going to buy, then the obvious thing to do is going to be to to check your welcome campaign. So what the emails they receive after they sign up, maybe tweak the offer, tweak the products you're featuring in it, tweak the story and the messaging you're putting across. That's part one. Part two is to, to isolate those people and see where they're getting stuck on the website if they're getting that far. So it, it helps you, you know, zone in on that one bit. And if both of those are fine, then you go, right, what else could we be putting in front of those people? Should we do a Facebook ad campaign? Shall we do something else? So I think it, the whole point of it is to make the decision-making process easier. So to help you get rid of tasks. So you focus in on the bits that need doing. I I was very pleased to see customer lifetime value being 
uh, utilised in your book. I think that's something that many marketers really forget because they're too task centric and they don't believe that actually what they're doing has any impact on the customer lifetime value. But I think in your model, that's explained that the customer lifetime value starts to grow from bottom left to top right if you do all of these things correctly or more of them correctly. Well, yes, it's those are um, so above those six circles I mentioned, um, you've got an arrow going bottom left to top right, as you said, which is the customer lifetime value arrow, which is a reminder that as people, as the human beings move from left to right, they're worth more to you. Mm-hmm. So if you've even if you've not got as many human beings at the points towards the right hand side, they're worth more. So it's worth spending more time on getting it right. Um, and then there's another arrow that goes top left to bottom right, which is. Um, the kind of the people, the human being arrow, which is a reminder that there's fewer people as you move across, because it, you know, it's it's worth bearing that in mind when you're working out where the priorities lie. But I also think there's another arrow that could be included in that, which is the declining cost over time. So you start at the at the left hand side, and you've got lots of cost in acquisitions, and you know, first time purchases generally aren't profitable. They may be a little bit, but in pure profit terms, they're not. It's only when you start to get them into repeat purchases and beyond that as kind of regular people that are dipping in and out of your website and making purchases ongoing, that you actually see that physical cost being much, much lower and hence the value to the customer is much better and your overall cost is much, much lower. So you might want to include that. You never know. You might not. (laughs) Well, for me, that's in the customer lifetime value line because customer lifetime value, if it's going to really be valuable to you, is about understanding how much it's cost you to recruit that customer as much as it is about how much they've spent. Because if they're coming in, I don't know, via Google ads, uh, Google shopping campaigns, let's say, and so you are, you know, you're, you're making £10 profit in an amazing world um on the first <laughs> sale um then if you're if you're i'm explaining this really badly what i'm trying to say is the customer lifetime value line should include the cost that your every cost of getting that customer okay. which is very hard to do which is why we often kind of amortize it across everything mm-hmm. but if you can work work that out even the amortized version then that will really help you work out how much you can afford to pay at the beginning of the process and therefore whether your customer acquisition needs to be um profitable whether you can afford to lose money on the first sale and so forth and then when we get really clever um, it goes down to individual channels so a google ads customer versus a facebook ads customer versus an organic customer how do their customer lifetime values stack up and therefore how much should be you be investing in each of those channels over the long term you've kind of explained this model that you've got in place which which seems like a very good model to be able to follow but how would a marketer be able to concentrate on conversion rates within each area of that what are the measures that they might use oh that's a tricky one um i see as a non-cro specialist i got to think i'll give you an answer on the fly on that one okay. so i suppose from the world to the website what you're what you'd be looking for it this would have to come you know you're not going to count it against all the people in the world but you'd be looking at for each of your marketing methods depending on the number of people you get in front of what percentage could you get to the website and as with all these metrics what you're doing is you're comparing with yourself over time Um, you're not comparing twitter versus instagram versus uh, i don't know your influencer marketing campaigns because they're gonna have very very different conversion rates because they're very very different platforms um 
then you're going to have well, then then things get a bit more straightforward because they've got to your website. Yeah. So one of the key rates that I think far more e-commerce businesses should track and keep an eye on is how many people they manage to get to sign up to their emails. I think if there's a a number two conversion rate for a website, it's email signups, most definitely. Because if you can get that pop-up or uh, or the footer or wherever it is you're putting it to work well, you should be able to get a high percentage of those people who would just leave signing up, sticking their hands in the air and going, tell me more about you, turn me into your perfect buyer. Then you have um, how many of the people who are, who sign up to your emails then go on to buy. And this is one you want to look at over maybe uh, within a month of signing up or within two months of signing up or within three months of signing up. You'll need to work that out for your own business to work out how long it takes you to get the majority of them or, you know, the right number to go and uh, to go and buy. And then we come into more of, you know, your standard visited the website, purchased um, conversion rate. Was that what you were after, John? Yeah, that's that's a pretty, pretty good explanation. We, we as marketers often talk about the ideal customer or the ideal customer type. So how can a marketer define and understand their ideal customer? What are the kind of things they should be thinking about? See, I'm a bit of a an odd thinker on this one, I think, or maybe a cutting edge thinker, but I think that's possibly too grand to say. <laughs> um, and I say this as someone who has spent a lot of time looking at hard and fast segments of numbers of people who fit in this segment and all the rest of it. I think these days what it's more important to get to grips with is the messaging and the 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 arguments, the the messages which convince people to buy from you. There's a fantastic book called The New Chameleons by Michael R. Solomon, who's a professor over in the States, who a marketing professor over in the States, who's been looking at all of this and we are no longer easily typecast human beings. You know, if you think back in the 50s, the housewife was a housewife. Yeah. You know, her her world was all about running the house properly and, under, you know, organising all the stuff that went on in the house, taking care of the kids and so on and so forth. These days, the housewife in inverted commas probably also has a job and is probably has hobbies and is probably sharing that work with her husband or her husband's doing all of it. She's going out to work. Or her wife, um, you know, we are now very different people, and we're often individually very different people in different sectors of our lives. So to try and pigeonhole our customers to fit into a geo demographic segment is quite hard, and I think ultimately quite futile. So I fa- I find there's there's a much better impact if you do a softer version of customer personas more of an avatars type thing where you which all starts by talking to your existing customer base and finding out the answer to one key question which is why do they buy from you which can also be why do they buy the type of product you sell mm-hmm. you know so if you sell mugs, it's why did they buy your mugs, but also why do they buy mugs, which is not the best um, <laughs> example in the world. But the only ones I can think of are ones I'm not allowed to talk about because <laughs> I'm confidentially bound on them. So we'll go with the bad example. Okay. But it, it's asking that why question, which you can do via surveys in the first instance, um, and then you can get into 
customer forums and discussions and chats with them, speak to your customer services team. But if you can really nail the why of why they are buying from you, what your product type, what your product category means to them, what your business means to them, then you can start getting the conversational piece of your marketing right across the board, which I think we mentioned a couple of times. But if you get those messages right, then it accelerates the impact of all the marketing you're doing. And it's kind of like the grease that gets people. I, we talked about my customer master plan model. I always say it's our job as, as e-commerce marketers to get as many people as possible from the left-hand side to the right-hand side yeah. and to do it as fast as possible because that's how we make money. Yeah. And this this why, this getting that conversational piece right throughout the whole process, throughout that whole customer journey, that's like the grease that speeds up the process through. You know, and when you get it right, then when one of your customers is recommending you to one of their friends, they are getting the messaging right because you put it so consistently through it. They are just chatting about your USPs and selling your business for you. I like the analogy of the grease. In in CRO terms, we talk about that friction reduction. So we reduce the friction from one place to the other and try and smooth it over. But I like the grease. It seems a bit slippier than friction reduction, um, which is good. Um, You you mentioned going back to one of the earlier parts of your kind of process is shining a light. And that to many people could be quite a different thought process. So what do you mean by shining a light? Ah, yes. When I was writing the book uh, and coming up with the model, one of the stages, so the spaces between those those lily pads, has an awful lot of stuff in it, which is getting people from the world to our website. There's an almost endless list of stuff you could do there. We all love stuff, don't we, Mark? We do. We do love love stuff, bright, shiny stuff as well. Um, But what I wanted to do is to add something to the model to help people make sense of all that stuff they're doing and, and ways of doing it to help them make their their overall marketing better. And what I came up with was three different categories of marketing to do in that space, uh, which I tend to draw as being a target. And in the middle, you've got the website and then their categories based on how far away from the website they are. And the first one is is get found, which is basically making sure when someone's looking for you, they find you. So the really obvious key terms in terms of SEO, um, really key brand terms on Google ads and Google shopping campaigns. Then the next level out is get found, which is, sorry, it's not get found at all. It's target customer. Yes. See, I should have, I nearly printed it out to have it in front of you whilst (laughs) we did this, John. I clearly should have done. The second, so you start with get found, which is the really obvious stuff. Make sure people can find you. Then you have um, target customer, which is putting your message in front of your target customer. So that's your Facebook ads, your longer tail keywords on Google, uh, direct mail campaigns, and so forth. And then the third one is shine a light. And this is the one I find most e-commerce businesses don't quite get as far as. So this is te- is putting your message, putting your products out in front of the wider world. So, um, and a lot of the same market- marketing methods can be used in both target customer and in Shiner Light. So, for example, if you're selling fly fishing, and this always comes to mind, fly fishing, I don't know why, I've never gone fishing in my life, but anyway, um, if you're selling fly fishing equipment, in terms of you might do some PR or some advertising in Fly Fishing Monthly, and that would count as get found. Sorry, not get got get found in the brain today. <laughs> that would count as target customer because you're putting your messaging in front of the target customer. But then PR and advertising might also encompass the Times Sunday Magazine. 
in which case you are putting your message in front of a much larger audience, shining a light on your business, although many of the people you're putting it in front of are not your target customer, but you'll find a few as you come through that. And the reason I structured it into those three areas and the reason shine a light is so important is because it's just like any other funnel in your business. If you do all the parts of the funnel, the impact is so much greater than if all you ever do is the get found and the target customer marketing. Putting a little bit more, a little bit of your marketing budget, a little bit of your marketing time into that wider shine a light category will reap benefits over both the short and the long term. And, and that's in B2B terms, which is which when we're an area which we operate ourselves. We do that through education and information. So providing the kind of the information that people would or may want to be able to understand about marketing or whatever, and also to be able to help them to move down that path of knowledge to be able to say, I can feel more comfortable in doing that than I did before. And we do that through blogs and we do that through podcasts, et cetera, et cetera. So, so it's, it, it's the same sort of thing, but across a, a B2B type of organization. Interesting, this this kind of um, being on your website, et cetera, et cetera. One of the important questions that I'm asking a few of my podcast interviewees is that which is more important, traffic or conversion? And you can't say both and you can't say it depends. I think traffic, um, because if you get your traffic right, um, it will help with your conversion rate. And you have it's a lot easier and quicker, I think, to change your traffic mix than it is to change your conversion rate. And because if you're not getting your traffic in front of the right people, then it really doesn't matter um, what your conversion rate is because they're not going to buy anyway. (laughs) So I'm firmly going to come down on traffic. And partly because after everything I've said in this episode, it would be totally wrong of me to come (laughs) up with like a massive U-turn if I said CRO, but I truly do believe traffic. I wasn't leading you down a garden path, don't worry. (laughs) But if if you think of your your path from left to right in your uh, marketing funnel, there must be more cost to the left than there is to the right. So if you're seeing or talking to a marketing manager who's doing their first budget for the next year, where would you apportion their marketing spend? I mean, it depends from business to business. It depends on where the opportunities are for you. I'll allow you. Um, It depends on this one. (laughs) But I'll give a bit more than that um, because I know how frustrating and it depends um, message is. I think. One of the things we've seen as the pandemic's rolled on is an increased interest in uh, post-purchase marketing and getting those repeats because everyone had so many more new customers. Um, I know several businesses who had to stop doing any marketing. So what are you going to do? You're going to work on building better relationships with the customers you've already got. So I think there's been... um, There's been a lot more focus on it. And one of the reasons why I suspect you're going to be putting more financial budget at the beginning of the process than you are at the end of the process. So for the new customer acquisition rather than the the, um, existing customer um, spend is because most of what we do in the post-purchase space, so turning first-time buyers into repeats and repeats into regular buyers, involves time more than it involves money. So it's great email um, sequences and uh, reactivation emails and um, come and buy again emails. It's putting in subscription programs. Um, It's building 
better FAQs and how-tos once someone's got the product. It's better customer service, more proactive customer service. It's improving our courier programs. It's improving the quality of our packaging. It's building VIP programs and loyalty programs and referral programs to make those customers feel connected to us. And the majority of the investment in those areas is time rather than money. So in terms of the hard and fast financial budget, most of the cost is going to go into the the front end. But there's going to be a lot of investment still in the back in the the back end of the of the funnel, but probably more time than money in uh, in that sense. So as we're sitting here in November. There's one big, and in fact, a couple of challenges that are out there, but one of the biggest challenges that we've got is supply shortages. And to be truthful, not many e-commerce brands have really suffered badly with regard to supply shortages. So now you can see that they've generated lots and lots of interest. They've done all the wonderful things they've got on your website, but they don't have much to sell them. So what should marketers be doing now? Well, I think you have to stay very close to the buying and merchandising teams to find out what's coming in and when it's coming in. Um, I think that one of the biggest things to do is to try and work out whether you're more interested in existing customer purchases, so selling to your your, your past customers, or whether you're interested in, in new customer acquisition. Who do you want the, to get the product? So there's a lot of getting really clear on who you're going to encourage to buy, what little stock you've got left, which is a really tricky one and partly comes down to margin. And I know as well as there being a supply issue, a lot of the costs are going up. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the new, you know, the additional supply chain costs of uh, empty container storage and and all the rest of it are insane. Um, so you may well be in a let's try and keep our margin, in which case those lower financial cost marketing methods of selling to your existing customers probably come into play. I think there's a massive question mark over whether to do Black Friday or not. So I strongly advise businesses to be at least once a week checking how big, how deep, how incentivized their Black Friday activity is going to be. Because just a a little reminder here, you don't have to do Black Friday. Um, You don't have to do a big Black Friday. You don't have to do Black Friday for everybody. You can do it for a secret list. Um, What you should be doing with Black Friday and any promotion as we go up towards Christmas is doing the best thing for your business, which also means the best thing for your customers. So I think um, throttling the marketing, protecting the margin, keeping a close relationship with buying and merchandising. And if you're not able to do much marketing, seeing what you can do proactively to reduce the load on the customer services team and the warehouse team is what I would be doing. What about being honest and open on your website with regard to stock availability? Do you think that's a good thing or do you think you should be kind of taking orders and, you know, hoping that the stock will come in? I think you've got to be honest and open personally, because I believe you've got to treat your customers with respect because you're wanting a long term relationship with them. Now, whether that means you're happy to take back orders or not is another question. So for me, there's there's kind of three approaches you could take, one of which is. Uh, we just list everything as in stock, even though it isn't, which I'm, I never sits well with me, but I know a lot of businesses do. And then manage whatever cr- <laughs> horrendousness comes out on the back end later, which is just cruel to whoever's dealing with your customer service. Yeah. Um, then the other two are you, I don't think you should ever take the products offline because that gives you all kind of SEO headaches, but um, to make them out of stock and unbuyable, 
is option is an option and the other option is to have the ability to take back orders where you're very clear with the customer when you think that product's going to be coming out um, I would probably go for the taking the back orders if you know the product's definitely coming in because so long as you're making it clear to the customer that's happening and you're keeping them in the loop it shouldn't cause you too much in the way of back-end costs but I wouldn't advise lying to the customer. <laughs> That's not good on any, on any terms. No. Um, I, I think the, the, the market is going to be incredibly confused over the next two or three months, perhaps well into the new year, because of these supply issues. And there are other things that are uh, bubbling around as well. But I think one of the challenges for, for any marketer is there are so many things going on at the moment. It's like juggling soot because things outside of their control are happening. Supply chain issues, you've got your product marketing people who are saying actually we won't have this or we will have this or we've got this we need to get it out the door because we've got too many of it and we're not going to be able to we're not going to restock that Mm -hmm. particular line it just seems as though this festive season black friday whatever you like to call it is going to be one of the most difficult for an e-commerce company to be able to get it right and it's so harsh i mean i've spoken to to a fair few retailers off the record in recent months and it has been a, an exhausting last 18 months. Mm. Um, you know, there's been all the chaos going on in our industry with huge amounts of more, more customers, not enough stock, too much stock. If you had physical retail stores last year, you know, the crazy as we went into to Christmas. And then we thought, oh, okay, we know what we're playing with in 2021. It's going to be a bit easier. And then the, the global supply chain melted down. And you're like, oh, my word. And then inflation came back. I mean, who saw inflation reappearing and the pandemic? And it's just been, you know, battering after battering. And then you've got all the things that people working in companies have had to deal with, with work from home and, uh, you know, recruitment issues over this time period and homeschooling and all this kind of stuff. And they are exhausted. Most people working at retailers right now, they have my hugest sympathy. It is tough. For me, the key thing to do if you're in that situation is a to recognize the fact it's really tough and be as kind as you can to the rest of your colleagues because they're who you have to rely on in these situations and then just try and keep things as simple as possible you know you have a lot of scope in marketing in particular to make your life hard or easy you know you can set up the black friday promotional plan that has a different discount level on 20 different products that you're sending some out to to x different segments and then you're doing something totally different for for facebook you can do that or you can keep it really simple and have one page that you will send some traffic to with these key products so it's within your power to make your life a bit easier to some extent i know it's not going to solve the whole problem so just be a little bit kinder to yourself. Take a bit of a, a breath. Speak to your team and consider, you know, both what the business needs to achieve and what you've got, but also how you all stay sane throughout it. And I think on this note, I think it's quite fascinating that I think it was Sainsbury's were the first big UK retailer to come out and say they were shutting for two days over Christmas to give all their staff a break. Yeah. Um, and many are now following in their footsteps. And I think that is completely the right thing to do because people are 
somewhat exhausted in the industry at the moment and and deserve to be looked after a bit better maybe it's definitely time for them to catch their breath and um, look yeah. forward to the new year whatever that will bring because we thought 2021 oh. was going to be different to 2020 but it turns out to be much worse but chloe thank you very much for your time it's been a, a, an interesting conversation as i expected it to be and I, i'm sure we could sit down and talk for another couple of hours about all that's <laughs> going on but i know you're very busy and I, i'd like to thank you for the time you've given up for, to me today and i would at some point in time when we've all caught our breath into 2022 to be able to pick up the pieces and say well what actually happened what what went well and what didn't go so well so chloe thank you very much for your time and we'll speak soon lovely thanks for having me on the show john it's been a lot of fun and i hope we've helped some people so thank you 